Welcome to Unlikely Intersections, the podcast where intent, impact, and inquiry inspire our conversations. The interesting thing about intersections is that we all face many intersections daily. The way we navigate these helps determine the trajectory of our days and our lives. I'm Dr. Philip Brown with my good friend, Dr. Terry Jackson. We have a wonderful guest today that we're really excited about. Terry? You know, this is Dr. Sri Kumar Rao, and we welcome you, and we thank you for being with us this morning. You know, Dr. Rao, uh, as Dr. Brown likes to say, you have been a paper mentor of mine for a, a moment, and uh, in reading your books, and, and, and you are a mentor of mine, as we are members of the MG100 and taking your course, but it's such a delight to have you this morning to introduce you to our audience and uh, it's, it's important, and I'm assuming for many it's going to be an engaging, inspiring, and life-changing conversation. Thank you, Terry, and thank you, Phil. It is my pleasure to be on this show with you. Among everything, uh, among other things, I enjoy the camaraderie that we already possess by being uh, members of the MG100. We've met many times, and I'm sure we'll meet many times in the future. I look forward to all of those interactions. And this is a part of that, and I just love it. Thank yeah, you for yes. having me on your show. You, you're welcome. You're welcome. You know, I my introduction of you wouldn't do you justice. If, if you will begin and give us an introduction, and as to why you got in the work, because it really speaks to, to purpose. Oh, fair enough. Okay. <clears throat> so I was very successful in corporate, uh, in a corporate life. And then I got burnt out by corporate politics. I went into academe thinking that everybody would be imbued with a pure quest for knowledge and there was no politics. I was sadly <laughs> mistaken, very sadly mistaken. <laughs> the uh, politics is alive and well in academe. I think that it was Henry Kissinger who said, the reason the knives are so sharp is because the stakes are so low. Mm. He, he got mm. it to a T. <laughs> so all my life I'd been doing a lot of reading, spiritual biography, mystical autobiography. They take me to a wonderful place and I came back to the real world and it was not so pretty. And I remember thinking that if all of this was useful only if you were sitting quietly thinking peaceful thoughts, but not when you came to the hurly-burly, then it's useless. But somehow I knew that wasn't true. I knew that this was very valuable. Maybe the only thing that was valuable, I just hadn't figured out how to make use of it. So I got my bright idea one day, which is why don't I take the teachings of the world's great masters, strip them of religious, cultural, and other connotations and adapt them so that they're acceptable to intelligent people in a post-industrial society. And the thought of doing that made me come alive. I created that course and it did well. I moved it to Columbia Business School in 1999 and it exploded. It was the only course at Columbia which had a university-wide draw. I had students from law school, business school, the School of uh, International and Public Affairs, journalism, teachers college, all over the place. And Columbia, of course, is a big uh, international uh, school. So students from other business schools came there in exchange and they went back and said, this is a great course, you've got to have it. So I traveled. I taught it at many top business schools, Columbia, uh, London Business School, Kellogg, Berkeley, Imperial College. And then I spun it out and uh, 
uh, started teaching it privately in New York, London, and San Francisco. Since the pandemic, of course, it's been virtual. I got, in the meantime, it got a tremendous amount of publicity. It's, it was in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Fortune, Forbes, Business Week, Financial Times, London Times, Time Magazine, you name it. And the reason that it got such publicity is because I stated right there in the syllabus, this course will profoundly change your life. Otherwise, we're both failed. It's a business school course, for heaven's sake. What do you mean it'll change? <laughs> but it really does, because consider where I drew my material from. These are the world's greatest masters. Mm. I'm merely a translator. What they have, the insights that they have, I have been tested over millennia, and they work. Mm -hmm. All I did was put it in a different suit of clothes. So I'm a translator. I happen to think or I believe uh, that I'm a very good translator, but that's all I am. The wisdom is not from me. It's from them. I just channel it. Mm -hmm. that so that worked out very well. And in the process, I became a coach by accident because people came up to me and said, I want to work with you. And uh, yeah, your course is fine, but you know, I'm not interested in your course. I want to work with you. So I became a coach. So I have a niche in coaching. I coach people who are successful, generally entrepreneurs and senior executives who want to make a dent in the universe. They want to have extraordinary impact. But at the same time, they also have a spiritual drive, a spiritual life. And they know that life isn't all about getting the biggest toys or the most toys. And uh, how does that happen? Sometimes they have in the back of their minds that uh, I can sit down and meditate eight hours a day and grow spiritually, or I can become a business titan. Mm. And my job is, is to show them it's not or, it's and. Becoming a business titan is your spiritual path. Mm -hmm. So that's my coaching niche. I'm not aware of anybody else who's playing in that sandbox. There may be, I'm just not aware of them. So that, in a nutshell, is uh, how I came to be doing what I do. Well, I tell you, the timing is so perfect for me. And as most of our audience knows, I've recently had a career change. And it just so happened that it coincided within less than 24 hours of beginning the creativity and personal mastery course that you were referring to earlier. And I know that uh, in some of our previous conversations, you know, you have said you realize that none of this is an accident. So I was thinking... Maybe that's a good place for us to start with our audience is that, you know, a lot of these things are not really accidents. Oh, certainly. Uh, this feeds in so neatly into what I call the benevolent universe model. So mm. let me touch on that. Okay. Einstein, who we revere as a great scientist, and he was a great scientist, he discovered or formulated the theory of relativity, discovered the photoelectric effect for which he won the Nobel Prize, was also a philosopher who had an intimate understanding of how the universe worked. And Einstein said, the most important question you will ever ask yourself is, is the universe friendly? Now, let me repeat that. Einstein said the most important question you will ever ask yourself is, is the universe friendly? And the vast, overwhelming majority of us believe that the universe is neither friendly nor unfriendly. The universe is indifferent and 
unaware that we exist. So here I am going around doing my thing. There's the universe going around doing its thing. Sometimes it seems to help me. Sometimes it seems to frustrate me, but it's essentially random. Now, you can certainly live your life that way. In fact, probably the overwhelming majority of people in the world live that way. But play around with me. What if the universe was not unaware of your existence? The very universe was very much aware of your existence and the universe was well disposed towards you. The universe was friendly. Well, if the universe was friendly, why does the universe give you stuff you don't want? You want to travel, go on vacation, and the universe gives you pandemics and lockdowns. Yeah. You want to progress your career, and the universe gives you pink slips. Why does the universe give you stuff you don't want if it was friendly? Friends don't shaft friends, right? Well, what if the universe gave you not what you wanted, but exactly what you needed at this stage of your life? Mm. You're a small child and you want a tub of ice cream and your parents give you fruits and vegetables. You don't want fruits and vegetables. Mm. You want a tub of ice cream, but your parents give you fruits and vegetables. And it isn't until you have a different level of maturity and wisdom that you can say, thank God I got fruits and vegetables. Mm. What if the universe was like that? It does not give you what you want, but it does give you exactly what you need for your learning and growth. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that regardless of whether or not the universe is friendly, if you believe the universe was friendly, your life would be immeasurably better. Mm. And what if the universe actually was friendly? Then magic happens in your life. Now, the universe is friendly as a mental model. A mental model is a notion we have that this is the way the world works. And just because you recognize that a mental model is superior, doesn't necessarily mean you can adopt it. That's right. You have to work at it. So if you believe, as most people do, that the universe is indifferent and uncaring and unaware of your existence, how do you come to the realization that it's a friendly universe? How can you rely on the friendly universe? And the answer to that is actually very simple. Start looking for signs that the universe is friendly. And once you start looking for signs that the universe is friendly, then you'll find ever so many of them. Like Phil, you recently had a involuntary change in your job situation, and that gave you lots of free time, spare time to focus your efforts and creativity and personal mastery. And we've been in conversation for more than a year, so you have been contemplating it, and all of a sudden, the path was clear for you to do that. If you look on your life, there are hundreds of such incidents in your life, most of which you simply ignored. And if you did notice it, you said, ah, that's a coincidence. Mm -hmm. What if it was not a coincidence? What if everything was carefully orchestrated? If you've ever been to a Cirque du Soleil, you find that there is action happening all over the stage. 
But when the trapeze artist above reaches the end of her swing, there is either a pair of hands or another bar for her to hold on to. And it happens only exactly at the time that it's needed. Your life is like that. There are no coincidences. Stuff happens precisely at the time that it can have an impact. And the more you start embracing the model, the more you start thinking about it, the more you say, could this be true? And when you're in that inquiring state of mind, you will find innumerable instances in your own life to justify that and make a note of all of those because you forget very easily. But if you make a note of that in your journal, you'll find very soon there are such a large number of instances that you begin to wonder, is it possible that I was wrong all along and the universe really is friendly? Try harder and you tip over, you tip over into into a place where the universe is at your back, has mm. your back. Mm. It is friendly. And your experience of life changes. You know, Dr. Rao, uh, one word comes to mind that I know you've discussed and you've talked about quite often. And there was a movie by this title, and that word is Matrix. <laughs> and, and, yes. <laughs> and all that comes with the matrix. So if you will just speak to us about the matrix and constructs, we greatly appreciate it because I really don't think a lot of listeners really give a lot of deep thought to the matrix. <laughs> yes. Uh, let me tell you a story about the matrix. The matrix was released uh, when I was in the middle of teaching my course for the first time at Columbia Business School. And the next time we met, there's a whole bunch of my students who came up and said, Professor Rao, there is a new movie that's released that talks about all the things that you're talking about. You have to see it. It's a fantastic movie. <laughs> so, of course, I went and saw it, and that was The Matrix. Mm. And the interesting thing about The Matrix uh, is uh, it's uh, such a parallel to your life because all of us think we live in a real world. We don't. We live in a construct. This is a construct we created with our mental chatter and our mental models. Let me repeat that. We do not live in a real world. We live in a construct. We are all living in the matrix. Hmm. The only difference is this is not a matrix created by an alien civilization out to enslave us. This is a matrix that we created with our mental chatter and our mental models. And having created it, we then experience it as we have created it. Let me tell you a story. There was one of my students who was working on a very big deal. This was a multi-billion dollar deal. And uh, the fate of uh, his company well, yeah, pretty much depended on it. Not that, you know, it would have failed otherwise, but it would have been a very, very, very severe setback. And he went on a vacation. And he went to a gorgeous, uh, spectacularly scenic place. There was the ocean. There were fantastic waves, bright sunshine. And uh, all the time he was worried about the wrinkles that had come up in the deal and would his key people be able to deal with that or not. And uh, afterwards, he couldn't recall a single minute of this vacation that he had gone on. 
couldn't remember one single thing, not one meal that he had, not one exercise excursion that he took, nothing. Where was he living? Hmm. We all live in our minds. That's where we construct the world. And then we experience what we have created in our minds, but we never recognize that this is what we're doing and this is what is happening. We're all living in the matrix. This is actually a wonderful thing because if you're living in a real world and you don't like it, you are screwed, grit and bear it. But if you're living in a construct and you don't like it, you can deconstruct the parts of it that you don't like and build it again. And this is something you do over and over again. And both of you gentlemen have just started the program process with the alternate reality exercise mm -hmm. in creativity and personal mastery. It's a super powerful ex exercise and you will be using it numerous times in your life going forward. And that is, uh, you know, that's one thing I think our listeners would love to hear about a little bit. You talked about how we basically are enslaved by ourselves, by the mental models we create through our mental chatter, uh, and that we can deconstruct and reconstruct. What does that process look like? Okay. That, uh, before I go uh, further on that, let me make a statement. This is a very strong assertive statement. All of the problems in your life, all of the problems, I'm not saying some of the problems, I'm not saying most of the problems, I'm saying all of the problems in your life are essentially caused by dysfunctional mental chatter and mental models. Mm. If you find you have a problem in your life and it persists, then you're using one or more mental models that are not serving you well. And the moment you make an appropriate change in that mental model, you find the problem vanishes just like that. Poof. There's several examples. Of that. Let me give you a story. So one of my students uh, graduated from a top business school and he got a job at a financial institution. I forget whether it was a hedge fund or uh, an investment bank. And the hours were very long, but the pay was very good. But because the hours were very long, he would frequently miss dinner and come late. He would miss things like his child's first performance or a birthday party. And his wife would get very, very, very upset. And they would have bitter fights and she would accuse him of not caring. And in his mind, uh, he was caring. That's why he went in and put in those long hours to generate the income that enabled them to maintain their lifestyle. So he was not on board with the not caring. Uh, it became a, a toxic situation. And then in the alternate reality exercise, one of his peers suggested, well, every time your wife lashes out at you, why don't you see that she's simply saying, honey, I love you, I miss you, and I wish you were here with me. I said, oh, okay, let me think about that and try it out. 
And the next time he missed one of his children's birthday party or some such occasion, he came back and they got into their usual routine and she started berating him for not caring. And instead of responding defensively as he normally did, he simply said, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. You must be feeling terrible. I wish I could have been there with you too, which was so different from his normal response that you know, she was kind of taken aback and the fight sputtered out. And it continued like that, and gradually their interactions became less toxic. They still had an issue which they tried to resolve, but uh, it was no longer uh, a, you know, this, this is the end of our marriage kind of situation. When you change your mental models, the world around you changes. I've got so many examples of that. That's amazing <clears throat> because, you know, I've heard you tell many stories around just the deconstruction and the reconstruction. And I've, I remember you saying you can't change what happened, but you can change the story that you tell that's yourself that's around yeah. what's happened. And I know yesterday I had an aha moment uh, around mental models that I shared in, in, in the course. Uh, I'm not, I won't share it here, but I've had a great deal of aha moments uh, in meeting you. One of the biggest, a couple of the biggest ones were um, when I told you in Nashville we were together having lunch and I said, I need to meditate more. And you said, no, Terry, you need to be meditation so that, everything's that everything that you do is meditation. Explain that to, to our audience as well. Oh, certainly. In our heads, we have a bifurcation and the bifurcation is you know, I live a very busy life and I can feel that my mind is out of control and going off the rails and I need to be calm. I need more peace and serenity in my life. I know what I need to do. I need to have a meditation practice and I'm going to get up in the morning and meditate for 20 minutes a day or I'll do it late in the evening or I'll do it morning and evening and you think that's what I'm doing. That's my meditation practice. That helps, and I'm certainly not discouraging anyone from doing that, but that is a stopgap. That is a band-aid. Your mind has been trained, trained by you to be spinning at an unbelievably fast pace for years, for decades. And if you think that trying to sit down and meditate for 20 minutes is going to be of any help, sorry. It's not going to slow your mind down. What the best it can do is slow the rate of increase of your uncontrolled mind. Mm -hmm. Because this, this demon has gained such enormous momentum. Prodigious effort. You've been feeding it for every minute, every second of your life for decades. The only way you're going to have any effect on it, the only way you're going to be able to slow it down is to put an equal amount of effort into that, that work. And the way you do that, as I said before, is don't say meditation, I'm going to do it in the morning, I'm going to do it in the evening, because that means that there is your life and there is meditation. Mm. The solution, and it's there in so many of our wisdom traditions, is your entire life is a meditation. Mm. 
Yes, you sit down and you do your 20 minutes in the morning, into the afternoon. I'm just not saying don't do that, but I'm saying don't let it stop there. Everything you do, when you're brushing your teeth, when you're going to the toilet, when you're conducting interview, have it in the back of your mind that you're not Terry, you're not Phil. Your real nature is pure awareness. You are spirit. You are playing these roles. Play them with gusto. Enjoy every minute of it. But know that's not who you really are. Who you really are is pure spirit, pure awareness. It'll seem very strange at first, so it'll take some work on your part to become comfortable and established in that idea. But once you do that, you will find that no matter what you're doing, in the back of your mind, there is this unbroken stream of thinking going on. Yes, I'm doing all of this, but it is not I who's doing it. That is what Matthew said when he <clears throat> meant when he said, I live, but not I, Christ liveth in me. Mm. Your job is to tap into that so that it is a felt presence and not a vague intellectual understanding. One of the, one of the cool exercises I know that you've started us doing, I've been doing it, is basically set a timer so that periodically through the day, and I've experimented with different times myself. I use 30 minutes, I use 27, I use 20 on different days just to kind of see and track it and yep. you know, stop and write down. And really the question that, that I've landed on is when that alarm goes off is, is the mental chatter that I'm hearing right now serving me well? Mm -hmm. uh, and just kind of keeping track of that and, and what it does. And it's really an amazing exercise, but you have several other ways of doing that. I wonder if you might share with our audience of how to just kind of begin to get a handle on the, on the nature of this mental chatter being present all the time. Yeah. The point is observe yourself uh, anytime you feel agitated for any reason. You have strong sexual impulses, you're angry, you're fearful, you're nervous, you're anxious. Every time something like that happens, if you can pause for a second, you will notice that it's all happening because you're not observing your mental chatter. You are becoming your mental chatter. You've lost the observer status. But the moment you can become the observer, you will find that these thoughts lose much of their intensity. Oh my God, I got fired. This is terrible. But if you can observe that, you say, oh, he is feeling anxious and nervous as opposed to he is anxious or nervous. That's the feeling. It's passing through. Many feelings have passed through you before. There have been times in your past when you're absolutely terrified. It passed. <laughs> this too shall pass. And it will pass if you are the observer. If you stop being the observer, it will still pass. But it will pass after doing you a tremendous amount <laughs> of emotional <laughs> damage. <laughs> Excellent, excellent, excellent. You know, one of the the statements that I've I've heard you you say that really resonated with me is just bloom and the bees will find you. And you talk about the only work that we really have to do is work on ourselves. 
If you can elaborate on that for us, we'd greatly appreciate that. Certainly. Uh, it goes back once again to the concept of a benevolent universe. And I believe that the only purpose in life is to work on yourself. Mm. And the benevolent universe gives you many tools. And these tools include your family, including your spouse and children, your work, the customers or clients that you have, the person who sits next to you on a plane trip that you're taking. They're all tools. You want to be as good a father as you can be. You want to be as good a partner as you can be. You want to do well by your clients. So you try your level best to do that. But in the process of doing that, what you're really doing is you're working on yourself. Everything but everything is a tool given to you and use it as skillfully as you can. But in the process of doing that, what you're really doing is you're working on yourself. The only thing you ever do in life is you work on yourself. So if you have that understanding, then you do what you can, but you do not beat yourself up when the results are not what you would have liked them to be. At any given point, what you're doing is you're trying to do your best. You know, Lincoln was uh, reputed to be a great orator. And when people say Lincoln was a great orator, they are generally talking about the Gettysburg Address, which is a fine speech. I have nothing to say against that. But I also like his second inaugural where he says, with malice towards none, with charity for all, let us do the right as God gives us to see the right. Understand, he didn't say, I'm going to do the right. He said, I'm going to do the right as God gives us to see the right. We evolve, the situation changes, and when it changes, perhaps what you today saw as right is not as right tomorrow. In that case, you will do what is right at the time when you do what you need to do. So have that, if you will, as your guiding light. With malice towards none, with charity for all, we will do the right as God gives us to see the right. And recognize that everything but everything is a gift. If you are a person of faith, then be grateful to God. If you're atheistic or agnostic, the universe did it. They both work equally well. Yeah. That's so, so, so powerful, so powerful. And another thing that, that I think you have explained to me in a different sort of way over time is the power of gratitude. And, you know, we, we, gratitude has been real popular lately. Mm -hmm. Folks always talking about, you know, just, it, you know, be grateful and it, it'll change your life. But for you, it's a little bit deeper, right? It's really becoming gratitude in a sense, if you will, rather than just being grateful for a bunch of stuff that you have. Can you sort of elaborate on that a little bit for? Sure. Gratitude is now the new in thing has been discovered, yeah. Yeah. quote unquote, in the last uh, few years. And everybody talks, oh, you've got to be grateful. And many people advocate gratitude practices and exercise. What are three things that happened to you in the last day or the last week for which you're grateful? What are three things that, uh, you can look at and say, you know, this, this is a miracle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
And all of those are good. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do it. But I'm saying they only scratch the surface. And one of my students actually came up and challenged me. She said, Professor Rao, you know, people feel grat grateful because uh, there are people starving in uh, Bangladesh or the people are homeless because of the war in Ukraine or the earthquake in Turkey. Then you're actually, in some sense, using their misery to bolster your well-being. That doesn't sound uh, a very nice thing to do. And there's more than an element of truth in what she is saying. Because anytime we are grateful for something, I'm grateful for good health. I can get hit by a truck tomorrow and become a quadriplegic. So what happens to my good health? <laughs> right. Anything that you are grateful for can be stripped from you. So I certainly advise people to be grateful for the many blessings in their life. But then I advise them to go further. Don't be grateful for anything. Just be grateful. That requires effort on your part. It requires an intellectual understanding of what I'm advocating and then effort to make that a part of your life. And it's a very good idea to begin as a first baby step to be grateful for the good things in your life. I will wager that all the people who are listening to this broadcast are incredibly privileged. None of them have to bother about whether I'm going to have dinner tomorrow. They have beds to sleep in. They have roofs over their head. Any of these is a big deal in a big chunk of the world outside. So when you point that out, you say, yes, yes, you know, I am privileged. But they don't feel privileged. They feel stressed out and put upon. They feel that they're living in a very cloistered, claustrophobic matrix. What's the reason for that? The reason for that is because of how they use what I call the flashlight of your awareness. Mm. Your awareness is exactly like a flashlight. What does a flashlight do? It illuminates whatever you shine it on. Shine it on the floor, it lights up the floor. Shine it on the floor, it uh, on the ceiling, it lights up the ceiling. And I'll prove it to you. I would like you, both of you gentlemen, right now, to take your flashlight of awareness and shine it on the chair in which you are sitting. Mm -hmm. And the moment I do that, you feel the pressure of your buttocks on the seat of the chair. You feel the fabric or the leather against the back of your thighs, right? Yes. 30 seconds ago, you were not aware of any of this, but now you are. Why? Because you've shown the flashlight of your awareness on that. Typically, what do we do with our flashlight of awareness? We shine it on the two, three, or four things that, we, that, is, that are wrong in our lives. Or more precisely, on the two, three, or four things that we arbitrarily decide is wrong with our life. And the 50, 60, 200 things that are pretty darn good about our lives, we never shine the flashlight of our awareness on them. We take it for granted, and so they slip by unnoticed. Lousy strategy. So what I advise is starting immediately, shine the flashlight of your awareness on the many ways in which you're truly blessed. I advocate certainly doing it last thing at night before you go to bed. 
when you get up in the morning, don't go immediately to the place of, oh my God, there's too much to do and I don't have enough time to do it all, which is a room that too many of us live in. Mm -hmm. Bring to mind the many ways in which you are incredibly, incredibly fortunate. Wallow in it, marinate in it, soak yourself in it. And as you go through the day, periodically bring that up and revel in it, rest in it. And it's my hope that every one of you, everyone listening to this podcast will live in a default emotional domain of appreciation and gratitude. Mm. And the reason for that is simple. When you're in the default emotional domain of appreciation and gratitude, you're not anxious, you're not nervous, you're not fearful, you're not worried. The two cannot coexist. And from that default emotional domain of appreciation, gratitude, take whatever steps are appropriate to change the things in your life that you would want to be different. But when you reach out to make those changes from the domain of appreciation, gratitude, there is a power in your reaching out and your efforts that was not there before. And you'll be surprised at how easily you can deal with what you previously considered intractable or insurmountable problems. You know, I'm in the CPM course for the second time now, and I'm, I'm also a part of the, the journey of awakening, right? Uh, because I'm going, going to go deeper into the studies and deeper into myself. We talked about connotations before, the power of connotations and how we should strip them away. I've heard you talk about a construct called good, bad, who cares? And you told the story of a gentleman whose family had, uh, I guess, some horses. If you can walk us through that, I think that's a great illustration for our, our listeners to, to Certainly. hear. Certainly. This is a very famous tale. It comes from the Sufi tradition. And it talks about a man and his son who lived in a beautiful valley. And they were very happy, but they were also very poor. And the man decided that he was going to become rich. He was sick and tired of being poor, and he wanted to be rich. And he decided he was going to become rich by breeding horses. So he bought a stallion. Did not have enough money to buy a stallion, so he borrowed heavily from the neighbors. And the very day he got a stallion, it kicked the top part loose from the paddock where he housed it and ran away. And the neighbors came around and said, you were going to become a rich man, but your stallion has run away. And you still owe us money. You are screwed. And the man shrugged his shoulder and he said, good thing, bad thing, who knows? That stallion fell in with a group of wild horses and they were grazing close to the way the man lived. And he was able to entice them into the paddock, which he had repaired. So escape was no longer possible. And all of a sudden, he had a stallion back plus about a dozen wild horses. By the standards of that village, that made him a wealthy man. And the neighbors came around saying, we thought you were destitute, but fortune has smiled upon you. How lucky you are. And the man shrugged his shoulder and said, good thing, bad thing, who knows? The man and his son started to break the horses so they could sell them on the market. And one of the horses threw the man's son and stomped on his leg. And it broke and it healed crooked. 
and the villagers came around commiserating. He was such a fine young lad, and now he'll never be able to find a girl to marry him. How terrible. And the man shrugged his shoulder and said, good thing, bad thing, who knows? That summer, the king of the country declared war on a neighboring country, and press gangs moved through the villages, rounding up all the able-bodied young men to serve in the army. But this man's son was spared because he had a crooked leg. And the neighbors came around with tears in their eyes and said, we don't know if we'll ever see our sons alive again, but you still have your son. How fortunate you are. And the man shrugged his shoulder and said, good thing, bad thing, who knows? And it goes on like that forever. Now think about your life, gentlemen. Can you recall any instance when something happened that at the time it happened, you thought this was terrible. This is terrible. But now with the passage of time and greater wisdom, can you say, okay, that wasn't so bad at all. Or maybe even that was good. I'll give you an example. This just happened to me a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I had a person reach out to me for a uh, speaking engagement, and it was a very lucrative speaking engagement. And I took note of that, and we said, okay, we can work something out. And then a speaking agent called, called me and said, I have an opportunity. Would you be very interested? And since I did not know the speaking agent, I thought I would refer him to somebody who uh, I was working with who wants to represent me. And uh, I want her to represent me. And, but she has to sell it internally to her uh, bureau. And I thought I would turn it over to her. And some instinct told me, no, don't do it. So I rely on my intuition and I did not do it. And it turned out that the person, uh, the speaking bureau who contacted me was actually referring to the same uh, engagement mm. that the client had contacted me for. Mm. If I had contacted the agent I wanted to work with, it would have unnecessarily complicated and perhaps compromised the relationship that was building. Mm -hmm. In this particular case, that did not happen, but it could so easily have happened. That is not the best possible example. Let me give you another one. I was speaking before the Global Executive Summit of the Entrepreneurs' Organization, and when I narrated the good thing, bad thing story, somebody got up in the back and insisted on being recognized. So I did. And he said, Professor Rao, I have the exact perfect story for you. He was a very bright student. He graduated from the top engineering schools in India, got a master's from Stanford, got an offer with a high-tech firm, and he was looking forward to building his career. And his friends got offers from other high-tech firms. They were all going to build their careers together and, you know, carry on their comradeship. But he had an immigration problem as a result of which he had to leave the country. Tried to fight it by hiring a top lawyer, didn't work. So he had to leave and he thought his career was over. Among other things, he had student debt. And when you have student debt in dollars 
and you're earning in rupees, you're not in a very mm -hmm. good place. Mm -hmm. But he said, Professor Rao, as a result of my being forced to leave the country, I married, met and married this wonderful lady who's now my wife. I teamed up with a couple of my engineering school buddies and we started a company and is going gangbusters. All my clients are in America. I come to America at least six times a year and I have a picture perfect life and none of this would have happened if I had not been forced out of the country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whenever you're about to label something bad, understand that when an event occurs, it does not cause suffering. Any event, you get fired, you now have a lot of spare time. You get fired and you go, oh my God, what am I going to do? How am I going to pay my mortgage? My kid's college tuition is due. This is terrible. And the moment you label it, this is terrible, at that instant, suffering begins. Suffering doesn't begin when you lose your job. Suffering begins the instant you label it terrible, bad. Mm -hmm. Correct? Are you with me on that? Yes. So if you ask yourself that question, is there any possible way in which this thing could possibly turn out to be good? Just ask yourself that question before you label it bad. Just asking yourself that question will move you to a different emotional domain. And then if you ask yourself the next question, what can I proactively do to make it good? And you move seamlessly from the realm of despair to the realm of possibility. This is how you become not resilient, but extremely resilient. Nothing ever gets you down because you never label anything that happens to you as this is bad, this is terrible. You simply label it, this happened. And then, of course, there's a logical question, what do I do now? So if you practice this, then no matter what happens in your life, instead of labeling it a tragedy, you label it this happened, and then you ask yourself, what can I do? Is there any possible way that in a few years I look back upon this and say, what a wonderful event? Yeah, you know, you touched on something that, that set my mental chatter off a minute ago, and 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 it's the second arrow phenomenon that you explained so eloquently. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that second arrow for our listeners. We all shoot ourselves a lot. Oh, yes. Uh, as I mentioned before, I am an executive coach. I coach persons who have uh, a strong spiritual drive and who also want to make a out, out, outsized impact on the universe. And if I could get them to stop at the second arrow, they'd be way ahead of the game. Frequently, they're on their fifth, sixth, or 298 <laughs> arrows before they realize what they're doing. This is a teaching of the Buddha, and it's one of the more powerful teachings of the Buddha. The Buddha asked Ananda, his disciple, Ananda, if an arrow would hit you in the arm, would it not be very painful? And Ananda nodded and said, yes, Lord, it would be very painful. And if a second arrow would have hit you exactly where the first arrow hit, would, not, would it not be even more painful? And Ananda nodded and said, yes, Lord, it would be even more painful. And then the Buddha asked a surprising question, why then do you shoot the second arrow? Now, that needs some explanation, so let me tell you a story. This is a story that I have uh, taken from a TED talk that I listened to. 
Uh, there was a woman, uh, an attractive woman, very successful, and she had a very messy divorce. And it broke her up. It took her a very long time to recover. But in bits and pieces, she put her life together and felt that she was ready to go out again. So she went to the internet sites and filled in a profile and all the usual things. And she met this entrepreneur, handsome, funny, and most of all, he really seemed into her. So after a few weeks of talking on the phone and texting and the rest of it, they decided to meet. And she was all excited and she bought a new dress and they met in an upscale Manhattan cafe. And 15 minutes into that meeting, he gets up, he throws his napkin on the table and he says, I'm not interested. And he walks off. And the woman was crushed. She was so dejected that the only thing she could do was call her friend. And a friend said, well, why are you surprised? You have fat hips. You have nothing interesting to say. Why would a handsome, intelligent, successful man pay any attention to you? Are you shocked that a friend would say something like that at this juncture? Probably. Would you be less shocked if I told you that it wasn't a friend? It's what she told herself? Hmm. Probably. That is the second arrow. It's bad enough being rejected, but telling yourself that you're physically unattractive and socially inadroit, does that make things any better? Obviously not, but we do it all the time. The interesting thing about the second arrow is that it is always delivered by mental chatter. Let me repeat that. The second arrow is always delivered by means of mental chatter. That's how important that concept is. And as I said, with my coaching clients, if, I, if they stopped the second arrow, they'd be way ahead of the game. Very frequently, they're on their 50th, 60th, or 600th arrows before they realize what they're doing to themselves. Here is a challenge I throw to you and everyone listening to this podcast. No matter what situation is of concern to you right now, no matter what situation is of concern to you right now, your mental chatter about that situation is making it at least an order of magnitude worse, mm. perhaps several orders of magnitude worse. And that's one of the things I do with my coaching clients and in the course that both of you are in, is we show you how to recognize the second arrow and stop shooting them. God knows life is going to give you enough wounds without <laughs> your adding right. to their uh, number and intensity. That's pretty deep. I mean, that's one thing I think as we, as we get ready to wind up the hour and it's gone fast. Wow. Really appreciate the, the powerful messages shared with our audience, but that whole concept of we're, we're continually injuring ourselves with that second arrow that's born in that mental chatter, which is going on all the time, way more than we can ever recognize. Uh, just, just working on that. And I wanted, as we kind of close out, 
one of the things that I've noticed in your program that you're pretty insistent on, don't just notice it, write it down. And I was wondering if you could just share with us the power uh, of writing it down versus thinking you can just keep up with it. Uh, when I ask you to note things, when I ask you, for example, to note the signs that the universe is friendly, when I ask you to note down stuff that happened in your life that you thought was terrible, but you can now see that it was not so after all, you forget. You forget how many such instances there have been. You don't even remember what you had for breakfast three days ago. What makes you think you're going to remember this? Mm -hmm. You're not. Write it down. But when you write it down and in your own handwriting, you see how many instances there are that it was a friendly universe, the cumulative impact of that makes, makes itself felt. That's why both of you are doing the alternate reality and part of the instructions you were given is note down all the signs you have that the reality is working. Mm -hmm. It's super important you do that because otherwise you'll simply forget. It is amazing. I know I'm uh, getting ready to start my second notebook already. We're like two weeks into the class. So that <laughs> is very powerful. Dr. Rao, it's been just a wonderful hour. and Thank you so much for joining us uh, and, and sharing so much wisdom with our listeners. We want to make sure folks know how to find you. But if they want to find our podcast, then it's obviously it's here on Facebook at Unlikely Intersections. You can find us on YouTube at Unlikely Intersections. Our website is unlikelyintersection.com, or I can be found either on LinkedIn at Doc Philip Brown uh, or at docphilipbrown.com. And Terry? I can be found on LinkedIn, Terry Jackson, PhD, or on Facebook. And Dr. Rao, how can our listeners um, find you? Well, they can find me on LinkedIn, Sri Kumar Rao. They can find me, uh, they can email me, Sri Kumar, S R I K U M A R dot rao at the rauinstitute.com or they can go to my website which is www.therauinstitute.com thanks so much for joining us at the intersection and to our listeners we'll see you at the next intersection my pleasure entirely phil and terry and i wish you lots of luck with uh, your podcast and i wish you a super the rest of your lives thank you thank you, thank you.